name is Kendall, and I am reading Joshua 8, 33. Right? Yes. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priest who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at first to bless the people of Israel. This is God's word. Thank you, God. You guys know why we say thank you, God? Whenever we read scripture and um, we're done, we say this is God's word. We say thank you, God, as a church. Some of us say it and we're not really grateful for God's word. Sometimes I fit into that category depending on what day it is. But we say thank you, God. We declare as a church gratitude for God's word because God's word is a gift. It's a gift of grace. It's not a textbook that measures by standards how well we're living life. It's not a story of a bunch of heroes. God's word is his relationship with his people revealed to us through the history of humanity in light of the history of God with humanity. And so we, we say thank you, God. We, we read scripture. We preach from the scriptures because it's from the scriptures that we know who our father is, that we know who our savior is, and that we know how to follow him. And so when we read, let us not measure ourselves against these so-called heroes of the faith that we find in its pages or that we look and see, well, I'm not doing this as a Christian. I'm not doing that as a Christian and bring ourselves to shame through reading scripture. We read scripture to see the beauty of God through his revelation to us. We learn who God is and what he's doing. We learn who we are and what God has called us to do in light of these truths. And so um, that was impromptu, unscripted, not in my notes, but it ties perfectly into my introduction because I'm coming off of a week that maybe some of you can relate to this. I'm coming off a week that I just felt like I couldn't do anything right. Anybody ever feel that way? It's okay. Failure doesn't have to define us, so we can talk about it. It can be helpful for us to talk about it. But I'm coming off one of those weeks where I, I was in the middle of reading a book to uh, my kids, and I knew somewhere along the line that I had lost the Eng English language. I had a hard time like discerning what the words were on the page. And my son turned to me and he said, Dad, are you actually reading this book? Because you're not making any sense. It, it was, we've, we found ourselves in a perfect storm of sleep deprivation and uh, schedule packed too full on a holiday weekend. And then you throw in the factor that you can't walk outside without it being too hot. Like, it's so hot that it's stressful. Like when you walk out your door, you're sweating, not because you're hot, but because you're stressed because it's so hot. And so we found ourselves like in this perfect storm of a week where on top of that, we couldn't do anything right. I couldn't do anything right. Do you ever feel that way? And so you get to Sunday morning and you get here and you finally get a chance to actually sit down and be a human for a second. And you're like, whoa, I'm kind of like reeling from the last six days. 
And that's okay. We get to be where we are. Whether you're frustrated because you're trying to mount a TV and you have the wrong screws and you spend two whole days trying to find the right screws, no reason I'm telling that particular story. Or maybe you're reading a book and somewhere along the lines you lose the English language. There's something that's, that's revealing to you, hey, something's, something's not right, something's offset. Or maybe it's, you're a little more aware that there's something deep inside telling you, telling you that you're just not good enough, that you're not doing enough, that you're not as good as you're supposed to be, that you're not as Christian as you should be. And so you have these anger fantasies where you finally get to lash out with all the frustration that you've built up. Or maybe you've seemed to have made every mistake in the book when it comes to your friendships or your marriage or parenting. And so you just need something to make you feel better. And so you self-indulge in food, or maybe the opposite, in, in uh, not eating and going to the gym instead. Maybe you self-indulge as a way to cope and as a way to find therapy in substances or in relationships. There's something deep inside that longs to be accepted, approved of, thought well of, And because we are limited, broken people, we're constantly trying to find that. We're constantly trying to be unbroken and unlimited. And so we look everywhere. Whatever it is that you cope with for your weaknesses and your limitations, we all have something, all of us. If there's anything in this room that unifies us, it's that we all have something telling us we're not good enough. But somewhere along the way, we all also have something teasing us along saying, but you could be good enough. You can do enough. There's a set of rules you could follow. Just try a little bit harder. Just keep going. Be a better person. Be a better dad. Be a better sister. Be a better Christian. You can do it. Right, that voice teases us along telling us that we can be more than we are, or at least be different, because we're not good enough. We're not enough. We have to be different than we are. God doesn't accept us. We have to be different. Is that right? That's shame. And that sense that we have when we fail, when we, don't, when we have a bad week, that sense of guilt and shame that we're, we're just bad, That's natural and that's human, just like we talked about last week, that fear is human, our emotions are human, and guess what? You're human, you're allowed to be human, so you're allowed to feel. But what do we do with that? And so because we live within this cycle of shame, we also live in a cycle of performance. We find ourselves addicted to performance because this voice teasing us that we can be good enough convinces us that we've got to change the way that we live. We've got to change the things that we do. And we have a list of all of our shoulds. 
we relate a lot to Israel in Joshua 7, thinking that anything we've, we've got right now, we've earned. And so we gotta keep the boat afloat. But once we fall into that trap, it's a, a steep spiral staircase down to the bottom. And once we believe that we can measure up mistake after mistake, failure after failure, fear, despair, shame, regret. We start it really feeling that our failure is deep and it's real and there's nothing we can change about it. Because Israel, in Joshua 7, Israel did sin against God. We have sinned against God. It's just in our nature. We don't have to look inward in every time and say, well, what was the thing that I did? We can just trust, I did something. We're broken, we're sinful. We have sinned against God because we are limited and weak. We are prone to wander. But in Joshua chapter eight, we recognize, we saw last week um, in the battle of Ai, we saw that, that although Israel sinned against God, they failed in significant and multiple ways. God doesn't destroy them. He doesn't wipe them out. But he also doesn't overlook them. He brings them into a restored relationship with him. He brings them into a restored right living with him. God actually restores some of the things they lost, but he works to restore all of their reasons to trust and follow him. This was uh, verses, uh, Joshua 8, verses 1 through 29. Today, we're going to be in verses 30 through 35. Last week, we talked about um, the God who restores. This week, we're talking about the fact that we belong to the God who restores. And that word belong is on purpose because we don't like make our way into this belonging. We don't earn our way up into this status. Did you earn your way into your family? None of us. We belong to the God who restores. And so Joshua 8 is designed to remind us that although we are weak, God is strong. It actually reminds us that because God is strong, we can be weak. Because God is strong, we are allowed to be who we are. We're allowed to be weak. And guess what? That God accepts us as weak. Joshua 8 reminds us that our salvation and our identity as God's children doesn't depend on our performance or our success. It doesn't depend on our ability to keep up. In the first portion, verses 1 through 29, God communicates his love by saving them, by fighting for them, and by restoring what they had lost in their sin. And then in verses 30 through 35, where we are this morning, God uses a ritual. A ritual is a religious act that is meant to physically show a spiritual reality that we can't see. We cannot see into the spiritual without God's help, and so he brings the spiritual to the physical. And he does that in a lot of ways. 
One of the ways that he does that here is ritual. So he uses a ritual to show his people that his love and his promises are a gift, a gift of blessing. And God's grace in his gifts, his love, his promises, those will always outlast our failure to earn those same promises and blessings. The promises and love of God will always outlast our ability to earn those promises and blessings. Because even when we keep trying, we'll eventually get to the end of ourselves. Guess what still stands? God's promises and his love. We'll read Joshua 8, uh, 30 through 33. I'm gonna try to paint the picture of what's happening here. Um, but before we read, because we, we hear this uh, blessing and curse, we have the mountain of blessing and the mountain of curse, and then the, the priests read blessings and curses. Just quickly to summarize, we kind of have an idea of what blessings and curses are, right? It's hard to get those two confused. But just to be clear, the blessings that God declares for Israel Actually, both blessing and curse are rooted in Deuteronomy 28. That's where they're really brought out and expanded. But, but in summary, which is all throughout Scripture, the blessings of God are life, peace, harmony, restored relationships, physical prosperity. That's not the point, but it is a gift. Joy, love, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. These are the blessings of God that we would love him, be unified with him, and that we would love one another and be unified with one another. Heaven on earth is the blessings of God. The curse is the complete opposite. Fear, darkness, isolation, despair, anxieties, that we would find ourselves far and distant from God and one another in darkness, in hate. If you want more detail on that, you can go to Deuteronomy 28. If you want an artistic picture of the blessings and the curse, I would read Psalm 1. And then you can read Psalm 2 for a little bit of an artistic take on the curse, what happens, the nations raging and plotting in vain, and who God is in light of that. So let's read now. Now that we have an understanding of the blessing and curse, let's read Joshua 8, 30 through 33. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel. This is a callback to chapter one that Joshua is now, although he wasn't in chapter seven, he is now working in obedience to God's instructions. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there, in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, 
stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim, half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And what we have, um, can we show that picture of the mountains? Where they're standing is in front of these two mountains. This is the Valley of Shechem in front of us in the, the bottom half of the picture. And then the mountains we see on the left is Mount Gerizim. On the right is Mount Ebal. Um, if you get closer and you have a little bit better of a picture, you can actually see that the, the mountain of blessing on Mount Gerizim actually has trees and wildlife and it's flourishing. And then Mount Ebal is rocks and dirt and it's desolate. There's a little bit of vegetation, but nothing compared to Mount Gerizim. That, that's real life. You can go there and see that now, that the mountain of blessing has life the mountain of curse is desolate. And this is where all Israel is standing. See all those buildings? That's where they're standing. And God commands the Levitical priests to take the ark, to stand in the middle of the mountains and divide the people in two on each side of the ark. And then he commands the priests to go on to the mountains, on the mountain of blessing that the priests would stand and from the book of Moses, from Deuteronomy 28, they would declare the blessings of God. And from Mount Ebal, the mountain of curse, they would make sacrifice and declare the curse of distrusting God and not following in his way. And so what we have before us in this picture and in Joshua 8, 30 through 35 is the people of God brought before the presence of God, being reminded of what God has done for them. Remember, in time, where we are is immediately after Israel fails to obey God, fully aware of their failing. Now, there's two reasons why God chooses this ritual at this time to, to remind Israel. The first reason, the first is to remind Israel that there are two ways to live. And that's what you're gonna see in Psalm 1. There's two ways to live. Trust God and follow him and things will go right. This goes back to Joshua 1. Now, there's an there's a, a easy flip that we get there. We, we would rather things go right than be with God. And so, we say, okay, well, I'm gonna trust God because I want things to go right. But what he's saying in this first way of trusting and following is that you're not actually rooting your purpose in trusting and following God. You're rooting in your purpose in having something good for yourself. This is what Jesus talks about when he says, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, let me into heaven. And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Yeah, but we did all these things in your name. We went to church. We performed miracles. I prayed every single day of my life. I memorized the whole Bible. And Jesus says, yeah, but I, I never knew you. And that's the point. This should make us a little bit nervous, but it should give us complete faith that God is who he says he is. Because even if we are performing for our Christianity, even if we are performing for our salvation, God's love and promises outlast our performance. We can still turn to him and know him and be with him. 
And so we see that um, the first reason for this ritual is to show these two ways, right? Trust God and follow him and the, the rest will be given to you. Or go in your own way and end up like Mount Ebal, desolate, dark, isolated, afraid. The second reason for the ritual, which is the bulk of where we're going, um, you might be wondering, maybe if you've, if you've been here long enough uh, in Joshua with us, you might be wondering, when's this guy finally going to link this back to the Torah? Anybody wondering that? No? Just, okay, never mind. <laughs> the Torah is reflected in Joshua 8, 30 through 35, in Genesis 15. You don't have to turn there. It's many verses. It's a whole story. But it goes back all the way to the covenant of Abraham. So when we read in Joshua, Joshua renews the covenant as our subtitle for this paragraph. What we're meant to think is that Joshua renews the covenant that Moses initiated in the wilderness. When God said, follow these instructions, I will be your God, you will be my people. And he gives them the two ways. Trust me and follow me, or don't. Trust me and follow me, you'll have life. Don't. And your way is death. We're meant to see that when we see the word covenant, but in this particular paragraph, we see something very peculiar. This is why I had Kendall read verse 33. The way that Hebrew literature structures itself is we don't, um, the Greeks like to start with the most important thing, and sometimes you'll see that in Hebrew writing. Most of the time in Hebrew writing, what you'll see is the very middle thing. So all of the beginning points to the middle, and then the end points to the middle. This is a, a, a Hebrew literary device. And what we see in the very middle of this paragraph, all Israel. Now, normally, in the Old Testament, when um, God says all Israel, he says the tribes of Benjamin and Judah and so on and so forth. He names all 12 tribes. What does he say here? And all Israel, sojourner as well as native born. And then it's reiterated at the very end, all the assembly of Israel, the women, the little ones, the sojourners who lived among them. We're not talking about heritage here. We're talking about belonging. Who is all Israel? Who are the people of God? Those who have looked on him and had faith in his goodness, who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good and who trust and follow him. And it extends beyond the tribes. This is in here on purpose to point us back to the covenant with Abraham because in Genesis 12, one and two, God promised Abraham, I will make of you a nation of nations. I'll make you a great nation so that you would bless the whole world and the whole world would come to know me and see me as God. And then we see here in Joshua 8:33, who is part of Israel? The nations. Because the people, the sojourners are talking about are people that came with them from Egypt. It's people that saw the mighty deeds of God and said, oh, I, all I can do is put blood on the doorpost and God's gonna save me? Yes and Amen. And then they too left the most powerful nation in the world and trusted in God. It's people like Rahab and her family. It's people like the women and children of Ai 
who were saved from their slavery to sin and false idol worship. They looked on God and trusted in him and followed him. The sojourner and the native-born, Israel and non-Israelite, trusting in God. And so this connects to, to Genesis 15. So the, the, the mention of sojourners calls back to Genesis 12, saying all the nations will be blessed through Israel. And we see that they are. But then what connects to Genesis 15, because Abraham, like any human, is like, okay, God, I don't understand. I'm like in my 90s. How am I gonna have a kid because we don't have any right now? He doesn't understand. And God, instead of showing him how, instead of just saying, okay, well, let me show you, let me prove it to you. Instead, God enters into a promise. Just the fact alone that God says, I'm not gonna deal with how, I'm not gonna deal with logic. I'm just gonna ask you to trust me. That's pretty massive. And not only does he say, I just, I just need you to trust me, he makes a promise to say, he, he, um, in Genesis 15, he takes a few different sacrifices, a few different animals, splits them in half. He commands Abraham to do this. And then he uh, puts their carcasses in two lanes uh, opposite from each other. And he sprinkles the blood over the sacrifices in between them. And then God causes Abraham to fall into a deep sleep. And Abraham has a vision of the presence and the power and the goodness of God walking between the two sacrifices. And this was a common way in ancient Semitic history of saying, I'm entering into a promise. I'm entering into a covenant. And if I break my end of the deal, may I be like these animals. Kill me, split me in two and spill my blood on the ground. We're reminded of that promise because it's Israel who's failed. And what does God do with Israel in the valley of Shechem? He splits them in two and he puts his presence in the middle. And just when they think they're brought to their point of destruction, when the power of God comes in the middle of them and they think, okay, he's gonna wipe us out. He's made us to be like these sacrifices now. He commands the priest to make sacrifice on the mountain of curse. He says, I'm not gonna curse you. You belong to me. I'm gonna make a, I'm gonna make a way. The sacrifices will bear the curse for you. Just a quick side note. A lot of scholars, a lot of Hebrew scholars actually disbelieve that anything in Joshua really happened. And it's because they have not found proof that this moment happened. Three years ago, there was an archaeologist who just, he couldn't believe that this didn't happen. He's a Christian. He went to Israel and he had the technology to go back through the leading Jewish archaeologist who went through Mount Ebal and said, yeah, we just can't find any declaration of the blessings and the curses. We can't find the sacrifices, can't find the altar. Uh, and so they left and that was it. And they were like, okay, this must not have happened. So this Christian guy comes in in 2019 and he has the technology now to sift through all of the castings, all the stuff that they tossed aside. And he finds two tablets. And in the tablets 
are the proclamations of curse. Where the altar was supposed to be. And then they keep digging and they find an altar and they keep digging and they find animal bones. And the point I'm telling you is that it doesn't matter what we see, what we perceive to be reality. God's truth will always outlast because this moment did happen. They used all their their fancy science tools and they dated it back to exactly when Joshua would have been in Israel, when he was supposed to be in this point. Confirming that not only is is the, the historical record of this true, but the meaning of this is true because the sacrifices then are true. God bore the curse for us. He made a way that we didn't have to bear the end of our own performance. Israel failed massively. And God said, I'm gonna make a way. So when God swears on his own life to Abraham in Genesis 15, we can can be sure that in Joshua and that in the, the centuries and millennia to come, God will continue to swear on his own life that his promises of love and blessing will outlast our ability to keep up with the laws and the regulations and the instructions. We can be sure that there will always be a way for the people that belong to God. We see in Hosea 6.6 that although God sets up this way of sacrifices, he doesn't take pleasure in the sacrifices He doesn't take pleasure in the blood of animals because it won't fulfill atonement. It won't actually make us right. We're still broken. We still need animal sacrifices. He doesn't take pleasure in them, but he uses them as a way to declare his love and his mercy for his people. Animal sacrifices were imperfect, but they were meant to point forward. Genesis 15 is this anchoring point. Joshua 830 through 35, looks back on Genesis 15 and remembers the promise God made and launches us forward to the fulfillment of both Genesis 15 and Joshua 8, that one day there will be a sacrifice that is perfect. There will be a sacrifice that does make atonement, that does make us right, that keeps us from having to go back and back and back to make sacrifice again and again and again for our failures. Animal sacrifices weren't perfect. We see this uh, in Hebrews 10. The fulfillment of God's promise of eternal blessing, not temporary blessing, not blessing as long as we're on earth, eternal blessing. Let's look at Hebrews 10. You guys know where I'm going, right? Jesus, that guy. Hebrews 10 in the New Testament Kind of towards the end, I'll give you a second to get there. We'll have it on the screen, but don't be ashamed to use your table of contents. I still do. I had to use it to find Hosea, actually, this week. Sneaky little books. Hebrews 10. I'm going to skip around a little bit, but here's where we're going. Hebrews 10, 3 through 4 and then 9 through 10, and then verse 14. I'm I'm doing that because that's the main points of this. There's a whole lot of Old Testament thrown in here 
um, that we've already talked about or that's implied in, in, our, uh, in what I'm reading. Maybe someday we'll actually get to preach through Hebrews. We'll get to hit it all. Hebrews 10, verses three through four. But in these sacrifices that we just talked about, there's a reminder of sins every year. Israel would perform this, this uh, sacrifice, animal sacrifice for all the nation, sacrifice of atonement every single year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Skip down to verse nine. Because God knew that that was impossible. He sent his son, Jesus. So we look at verse nine. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. This is Jesus speaking. I have come to do your will, Father. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. He does away with the animal sacrifices in order to establish a better covenant, a better promise. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The sacrifice of Jesus, when he cries out on the cross, it is finished. That only needs to happen once because he was a perfect, sinless sacrifice. Fully God, fully man. Paid the penalty for our sin. He was sacrificed on the mountain of curse. As we stood in the presence of God, restored and united to him. All we have now is blessing. The payment for the curse is done with. We look on Jesus and all we have is blessing. But Jesus didn't just die. If he died, he paid the, 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 the penalty for sin. Our right standing with God is now secure, but what's the hope for eternal life? Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Sin and death could not defeat Jesus. He rose from the dead so that in his resurrection, we too would receive the resurrection. That when we look on him, not only do we get his life and his perfect sacrifice, we also get his new life, his eternal life with the Father. Let's look at John 6.40. He says, y'all don't have to turn there. It'll be on the screen. It's quick. For this is the will of my Father, that anyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, forever life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That last day either means when you die or when Jesus comes back to judge the world. You wanna be raised up with Christ on the last day, not forced to bow down and submit. We live our lives bowing down in submission now so that on the last day, we would be raised up with him. That everyone, everyone, God's desire is for everyone who looks on the son and believes in him to have eternal life. This is, why we worship. This is why we live our whole lives in light of the gospel. 
This is why we follow Jesus' instructions in Mark 8, 34, and we die to ourselves. We put to death the flesh. We, we tell ourselves, no, my desires are gonna lead me astray. My desires are going to lead me into the second way. And we look to Jesus and believe in him because we don't have to perform. What it means to look on Jesus means to depend on him to be that perfection. When God presented blessing and curse, they came with a condition, right? That in order to get the blessing, you've got to live the perfect life. And it could never happen. That's why the curse was always available. That's why the curse was always um, predominating over humanity. Sin, death, failure, weakness. That's why we need the sacrifices. That's why we need Jesus, because he did away with the curse. He despised the shame so that we would look on him. We do not have to perform. And so I'm not gonna give you a thing to do. We're not gonna have like this tangible application. Last week we talked about prayer, super helpful. Um, I encourage you, if you didn't, if you missed that sermon, go back, uh, learn a new way to pray in submission to God. But also, um, sometimes our sermons are, are better left without application. Just maybe a new way to see the world. Maybe a new way to see who we are and who God is and what we're doing here. And so I wanna ask some questions to help us see a little bit differently. What if we actually believed we don't have to perform? What if we actually believed that we don't have to measure up to the standard of Christianity in order to be saved, in order to be made right with God? What if we actually believed that the gospel is that there's nothing left for us but to look on Jesus and believe in him? What if we believe that? What if the reason that we struggle to be unified and love one another, the reason that we struggle to preach the gospel to our neighbors, to live the gospel in front of our neighbors, to preach uh, and, and evangelize and make disciples, what if the, the reason for that is because we disbelieve what God says, that it's finished? We believe that there's something left for us to keep up with. There's some measure left for me to perform to. What if that's true about what we, why we live? And, and what if we forsake that? What if we say, no, it is finished? What if we start trusting that what Jesus says is true, that his, his burden is light and his way is easy? And we just follow him. We have to keep coming back to this reality because our sinful flesh and the world around us will constantly pull us back into performance because we're, we're our flesh is addicted to performance and people who don't know Jesus are addicted to performance. That's the only way to live, right? And so we have to keep coming back to this. It's why for the second or third time in Joshua, Israel's being reminded again of the covenant. It's okay to be reminded. God made us to forget. Forgetting is a gift in a lot of ways. And the gift in this moment is that we get to be reminded we get to give ourselves a break 
and remember that Jesus paid it all. Um, this is why I actually included uh, Joshua 9.1. Let's look at Joshua 9.1 real quick. I included this in our passage because uh, we will pull ourselves back into performance. The world will pull us back into performance because remember, there's two ways that we respond to the gospel. We trust and we believe like Rahab or we distrust and we fight for our own freedom against God. This is why the king of Ai was killed and put on a tree. This is why the king of Jericho was killed and buried in rocks. As a way to say, there's two ways to live. You can either trust and follow God, or you can trust in your own performance. Let's look at Joshua 9.1. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland along the coast of the great sea toward the Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, heard of this. They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. We still wage war with our sin. We still wage a spiritual battle with the enemy of God. Satan, we still wage war. God wages war in his church, through his church. We're constantly being pulled back into performance, saying the gospel's not true. We're gonna fight against this to have our own freedom. I know how to live. I can find my own way. The reality is that some will look to Jesus. Some will rage war. Many will rage, wage war. And so while, while we take communion this morning, this is our, our great reminder that we gotta pack up, right? While we take communion this morning, if you're not a Christian, scripture actually says that it's better for you not to take the cup. Instead, while we take communion, would you consider, would you consider this? Aren't you tired of performing? Aren't you tired of having to be your own God? Aren't you tired of being reminded of your failure and there's nothing on the other side of that? And would you consider that Jesus paid it all? It's finished. And he's the only way to receive life and blessing from God. For the church, remember what Jesus has done for you. Take this time that we have for communion. Consider how you've performed. Consider how you've gone your own way. Repent. Confess that to God and turn to Jesus. And just remind yourself. Either say it out loud to yourself, say it in your head, Jesus paid it all. It is finished. We're not singing that song next, by the way. <laughs> that was unintentional. Take the shame that comes with performance, that fuels performance and contributes to performance. Take that shame, give it to Jesus and use it to trust in him. I wanna send you off uh, with with uh, Hebrews 12 real quick. Hebrews 12, one through two. Therefore, since we are surrounded 
by so great a cloud of witnesses. That's a pretty deep verse. In short, what it means is all the people who have gone before us and trusted in God and all the people in this room who trust in God. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses to the goodness and love of God. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Not because we can run hard enough, not because we can run fast enough, not because we can be enough, but looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus performed for us. Jesus won victory over sin and death for us. It is finished. We belong to the God who restores.